All right, let's take our Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. I want you to be real active this morning because we're going to be in three different passages. And uh, I want to encourage you to have your Bible ready. I want to encourage you to take some notes this morning. We're going to be in Matthew 8, Matthew 9, and John 8. As I was um, praying and studying this week, I started to think, I don't know why, sometimes the Lord just leads you in a direction, and I started to think about Jesus' life and about the three years specifically of his ministry that's detailed here in the four Gospels. Now, we know that Jesus primarily came to go to the cross. We know that he came to fulfill the law and to take our place on the cross and to defeat the grave, defeat sin forever uh, through his resurrection. We studied that a couple weeks ago, but but these three years, these years that are capsulized in the gospel, had a very foundational purpose of pointing toward the cross. And there are a couple of things specifically that really get our attention. One was his teaching, which was described by those who hear, heard it as unlike anything they had ever heard before, because this was the mouth of God. This was God speaking directly in man's presence. So people, when they heard Jesus teach, were just astounded. They were blown away. They couldn't believe the, the depth and the integrity of the word that was coming out. So in doing that, in his teaching in these three years, it established him as the word of God. Because John 1 says what? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So Jesus was the living embodiment of the word of God. So this established him through his teaching uh, as the God, as God in flesh, and as the Word of God, and it and it laid out the truth with complete clarity, so nobody would misunderstand exactly what God was saying. Then, as he taught, he also did miracles, and those miracles established him as having all of the authority and power of heaven, because nobody had ever done what Jesus was doing. People were, were stunned. They were falling on their faces. They were crying. They couldn't believe uh, not only the fact that he was doing miracles, but the miracles were real. There are a lot of false prophets today who claim they're doing miracles or claim they're healing other people, but it's, it's not happening. It's a, it's a fraud. It's a show. With Jesus, every time it was real. When he said, the blind are going to see, the blind saw. When he said, the lame are going to walk, they hopped up and started dancing around. When he said, a leper was clean, the leprosy was gone. The skin that was so caked and, and scaled now became white as snow, brand new, like a baby skin. So Jesus' miracles were real. When Lazarus was raised from the dead, it wasn't some kind of deception. Lazarus literally had the grave clothes fall off, and he walked out and started talking to people. So the miracles validated Jesus' authority. People who witnessed it had an unmistakable knowledge that this was God. And then the third thing he did was to show his love and mercy. Even to his enemies. Remember, he's on the cross and he's praying, Father, don't hold this against them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus showed mercy to those who were considered uh, people that he would not associate with as a Jew, like the Samaritan woman at the well. He challenged, but he loved the Pharisees and the scribes who put him to death. Jesus showed love and mercy, and that established him as the, as the example of God's character. 
So you've got his teaching, you've got his miracles, and you've got his love and mercy. Now all these remind us of who he is. All these remind us of what he came to do. But there's another factor. Because as Jesus did these things, he was giving us a powerful example to follow in our own lives. Because we as believers, we who have trusted Jesus, who have renounced sin, are called his disciples. And as his disciple, you then lived as the master lived. The disciples, when they left their homes in Capernaum and Galilee, they followed Jesus. Now, that didn't just mean they hung out with him from 9 to 5 and then went back to their houses. They lived with him. They walked with him. They ate with him. Everything was together. And the goal was not just that they would know him, but that they would become like him. Because in the ancient uh, history of time, that's what a disciple did. That's what a follower did. So Jesus lives a certain way to show us how to live. And each person who's been forgiven, each person who's had their sin cleansed, each person who's been adopted into the kingdom of God, now is called to live as a disciple, to live exactly as the master did. Now, there's no question, and we've studied it many times, that that means putting off our old life, that that means renouncing sin, that it means to, to not allow the sins that so easily beset us to have any latitude and have any room anymore, because we need to every, to, to every person that comes in contact with, every person that we meet, we need to be a living example of God's transformative grace. There should be no question when somebody meets Paul Rhodes, and I'm sad to say this is not always true, that when somebody meets Paul Rhodes or when somebody meets you as a disciple, that, that it's immediately clear that there's no equivocation, there's no question, this person is different. This person is an example of how God changes lives of how there is a new nature given, how there is a holiness, how there is a humility, how there is a, an attitude that is just different because we're mirroring how Jesus Christ lived. Now, the Bible says that that really, above all things, is the true test of whether or not we're his disciples. That how fully we're doing that really will be the validation and the proof that we're a disciple of Jesus Christ. So this morning, we're going to look at some of Jesus' most distinctive attributes. And as we go through them, I, I hope that we'll see that each of them is the polar opposite to human nature and social norms. Because how mankind lives on his base value, how, how mankind is set up with a sin nature... And how culture then appropriates that and acts out on that will stand and should stand in stark contrast to how we live as disciples. So when we live this way, we're not only going to be countercultural, but to do this, we're going to have to walk under the power and the control of the Holy Spirit because the human nature is strong and it will try to reclaim its territory. It will uh, try to gain back the ground that's been lost that Jesus has defeated because the devil isn't intimidated by the fact that you and I are saved. He keeps wanting to drag you down. Just like with marriage, he wants every marriage to fail. He doesn't care if you've been married a year or 60 years. He is still working to drive you apart. So when he looks at our walk, he knows he's defeated. 
but he's going to try to take us down as much as he can until Jesus comes back. Now, those facts, the fact that we're counterculture, the fact that it's going to take living under the power and control of the Holy Spirit, that will either intimidate us and cause us to hesitate, or it will be really exciting. And I pray it's really exciting. I pray that it stirs our hearts. I pray that it liberates us. I pray that it is powerful to us. And I pray, maybe in a fresh way for you this morning, that you and I will fully commit ourselves to living exactly as Jesus did. Not partially, not kind of, not I'm doing my best, but to live exactly as Jesus did. Because remember, when Jesus left, he said, it's better than I'm going. And that seems contrary to logic. It would be better to have Jesus here this morning, right? Then I can sit down and listen. Because if Jesus is here this morning, I'm not preaching. We would just be on our faces, right? When we sing holy, 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 boy, would that be just okay. That I don't need to look at the screen now. I'm looking at Jesus. When we sing, God, I look to you, he's right there. I will love you, Lord, with all my heart. And he's standing there with his arms out, and we can see the nail prints, and we go, okay, I can't sing that song the same way and again. So if Jesus is here, it's different. But Jesus says, it's better that I'm leaving because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and he's going to indwell you, and he's going to empower you. And when you live by my Spirit, it will not only be possible to live by me, it'll be the normal way to live. This will be how you live. Now, even after being saved 44 years this June, I am amazed at how often I forget that my old nature doesn't have ownership of my life anymore. I've been saved 44 years this summer, and I still struggle sometimes to, to, to buy into that lie that my old nature has rights, that my old nature has some sort of clout and some sort of influence over me, that, that walking by faith and living in holiness is an outlier. It's, it's an exception. It, it's not how we're supposed to live. But Jesus says, the way you are supposed to live is in my new nature because salvation has not only forgiven you and cleansed you, but it has completely changed you. And the reason it's better my spirit's coming is because he indwells you and takes ownership. And now you have the power and authority and ability to live just like me. So what does that look like? You ready to write some things down? What examples did Jesus give us? Well, let's look quickly this morning because I'm aware of my time at six things. We're going to take two from each text. And to make it easier, they're all going to start with S. Now, I don't usually do that. I'm not alliteration guy, right? You know that from having listened to me for years. But my dad was a pro at this, especially later in his ministry. He'd always set up an outline and all start with the same letter. I'm like, how did you do that? So for some reason, the Lord just gave us that this morning. So for each of these sections, each of these passages, we're going to establish one overall test of discipleship. It's going to be in the form of a question. One test of discipleship, and then we're going to look at two attitude, attributes of Jesus, and in each one we're going to have a temptation and a takeaway. That'll become clear as we go along, all right? Matthew chapter 8, look at verse 18. When Jesus saw a crowd around him, 
he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. Then a scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of the Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of his disciples said to him, Lord, allow me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. Now, let's establish the first test of discipleship here in this passage uh, that Jesus gives us an example of. The first test is, am I really willing to be as unencumbered as Jesus was? Am I really willing to be as unencumbered as Jesus was? In other words, are we committed to being unrestricted and unbound by the stuff of life? That's a big question because so often we are engulfed by that. I had a really, really busy week. Next week promises to be even worse. And as I think about that, right, you almost start to get a little bit of anxiety like, oh, oh no, all right, tomorrow's a nightmare, Tuesday's going to be worse, Wednesday, oh, I don't even want to go to Wednesday. And we get so so caught up by that. And yet those things, the, that stuff can, can limit us in terms of being a disciple. The stuff takes a lot of different forms. And many of them are, are, are worthwhile. Many of them are just the normal aspects of life that, that justifiably take our time, that justifiably take our attention and even our love. Jesus is not teaching us that we should neglect people. Jesus is not teaching us that, that we should shirk our responsibilities in order to serve him. In fact, he tells us many times, be faithful, be diligent, be accountable, be reliable. Labor hard, do, do a good day's work as a statement of your love for me. And all things, whatever you do, do it as unto me. Work jobs, provide for your families, raise your kids, serve each other, minister to those who are in need. We're never to give anyone, especially somebody that doesn't trust Jesus Christ, we're never to give anyone the, the ability to accuse us of being lazy. Christians should never be lazy. Christians should never be apathetic or slack or untrustworthy or, or kind of indifferent in our responsibilities. But... Jesus does teach us that all of those parts of life cannot take precedence over living for him. In our hearts, in our priorities, in our attitude, in our action, we have to follow him first. Now, notice how Jesus proves this, and notice two attributes of his life that stand out in the text. The first one is that he lived simply, Jesus lived simply. And second, notice that he was single-minded. In verses 19 to 20, this scribe comes to him, and he says, I promise to follow you. Wherever you go, I'll go with you. And Jesus highlights something that we don't talk about very much. He didn't have a home. Jesus did not have a place to live. Now, we know from the Bible that many times he'd go to Capernaum and he'd stay at Peter's house. Or when he was up near Jerusalem, he'd go to Bethany and he'd stay with Mary and Martha and Lazarus who were siblings and he was very close to them. So, so there were places he stayed, but Jesus was not a homeowner. 
He didn't have a place to hang out. We don't even have a record of him having a, a big tent, like when he and the disciples are walking around Galilee, that, that at night they'd set up a big tent and, and kind of hang out under that. But it really wouldn't have mattered because Jesus didn't sleep. Almost every night he'd go up into the mountains while the disciples were sleeping and he'd spend time in the presence of the Father. Now, obviously, Jesus doesn't require that his disciples to be without a place to live. He doesn't tell us, you've got to be homeless to follow me. Jesus had grown up in a home. He was in Nazareth, and his dad, uh, his earthly dad, Joseph, and he were carpenters, and they probably built a lot of homes for people. They probably established that. But I want you to see, it's in verse 20. He says, I live very simply. There wasn't a, there wasn't a, a, a being bound to maintain a place to live, to renovate a house. Jesus wasn't preoccupied with what's my next meal going to be. He, he wasn't overcommitted with a sport or a hobby. He, he, he wasn't caught up in keeping certain levels of social status. All the things that we tend to be tempted by. Take stock of how much time in the last week all of those things took up. Meal preparation and keeping the house clean and uh, not doing the yard yet other than maybe shoveling snow. The sports that we played, the hobbies that we did, the time we spent on social media, building relationships, hanging out with people. Think, uh, not to mention media, television, internet. Think about all the time that that took up in the last week, contrasted to the amount of time we spent in worship, prayer, study, and ministry. How many know we need more simplicity? I need more simplicity in my life. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't have ambition. It doesn't mean we shouldn't have fun. It doesn't mean we shouldn't have responsibility or take care of our houses or make meals or spend time with friends or, or do things that are helping. It doesn't mean any of that. It just means that those things cannot be the priority over being a disciple. See, I think if I said, how many of you, don't raise your hands, how many of you would consider yourself materialistic? Most of us would say, eh, not really. Not really a struggle for me. And yet materialism is much more than gathering possessions. There is a deceptive danger of being preoccupied with anything that relates to self-fulfillment. And I think that's one of the greatest temptations of our culture, and it's certainly one of the greatest temptations in Christianity. That's why the Holy Spirit, look back at the text, that's why it's important that he says this was a scribe. Every detail, I've said this many times, every detail in Scripture is important. So why does it matter that this was a scribe? Well, the scribes were the ones who studied the Word of God and then taught it. But in the New Testament, they are usually described as proud and not having good character and, and usually being opposed to Jesus. But, but this guy doesn't seem to be that way. He seems sincere. Comes to Jesus, hey, Jesus, I want to I follow you, and I'll go wherever you go. I'm so excited about what's going on, and, and, and I really want to really be a disciple. But there's something Jesus knows about him. Because Jesus' response seems to show that this guy's heart is not all the way. That, that this is kind of a spur of the moment, emotionally charged, maybe even I'll gain some advantage if I can get close to him type of decision. 
So Jesus says to him, I don't have anywhere to sleep tonight. I have nowhere to lay my head. So you need to understand that if you're going to follow me, if you're going to be my disciple, you cannot be preoccupied with comfort. And you need to understand that as a disciple, you're not the one who sets the schedule of when to be committed. Christians, we need to hear this. When we're disciples of Christ, it's not us to, uh, up to us to say, well, this is going to be the time I'm going to trust, and those times I'm not. This is going to be the time, Lord, I graciously set aside for you this week to spend time with you, but, but then I've got a bunch of other commitments, and, and you're just going to have to kind of understand that this is how my life is. Jesus says, look, I'm not, not a pity party here. I don't have anywhere to sleep tonight. So if you say you want to follow me wherever I go, understand the principle. Understand what you're getting into. Because it will not be easy. Then we see this second man that comes up in verse 21. He says, I just need to bury my father before I can follow you. And, you know, when you read this, Jesus' response seems a little harsh and calloused. But his point here is, you have to be willing to let go of whatever hinders you from living for me. We studied that last week. Remember, leaving Egypt behind? Those things that we cling to, those things that we hold on, that we say, this is important to me. So here's the temptation. The temptation is that we allow people and things and temporary responsibilities to take priority over being his disciple. It is so easy for us to be all over the map, right? To, to be reacting and responding to all the things that need to be done. But Jesus says, here's the takeaway. You need to be single-minded. You need to love me more than anything. You need to love me more than anyone. You need to lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven instead of worrying about what you're accumulating here on earth. And I was talking to my mom last night, and I'm only telling you this because it's an example to me of this principle. My mom's 83, and my dad died last year, so she's widowed. And it, she's, she's served the Lord all her life, called to ministry when she was in high school, served the Lord in college, was by my dad's side for 60 years in ministry. It would be easy to think at 83, you can just kind of coast your way in, right? Just, just take your foot off the accelerator and just kind of let it go. And my mom's frustration right now is she says, I don't know what to do with myself. And this is the phrase that got me. She said, I'm going to have to stand before the Lord and give an account of how I spent these years. So what should I be doing? Now, I look at that and I go, that's, that's this principle right here. That, that, that's, that's an understanding of not being encumbered by the stuff of life or even just, I just need to chill and rest and just kind of coast my way into heaven. She says, I need to be serving. Paul, what can I do? Who can I minister to? How can I be best utilized? At 83, that's this principle. And that's what God is calling us to, because that's the mindset of a disciple. All right? Turn over to page, chapter 9. Look at verse 35. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them, 
because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech or beg the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Okay? Second principle. The second example, the second test of our discipleship is, am I really willing to love and minister like Jesus? Am I really willing to love and minister like Jesus? Now, it is very interesting how much Christianity has reshaped our definition and our approach to ministry over the last 30 years. We've talked about it many times. I don't want to rehash it this morning. I don't want to belabor the point. But it is important for us to understand that there has been a a tectonic shift in Christianity over the last 30 years. And there are positives out of it, and there are negatives out of it. And I'd like to spend just a minute or two highlighting both, hopefully without overgeneralizing. Okay? From a positive standpoint, because we should start with a positive, I believe that the church has done a good job of signaling a desire to be more open and accessible to people, no matter who they are, and no matter what's going on in their lives. Because the church has not always done this well. I remember Pastor Simbola about 20 years ago at a conference says, 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour of the week. Because the white church meets, the black church meets, the Asian church meets, the Thai church meets, whatever it is, we're we're all separated. And really, that's not what heaven's going to look like. Every tongue, every tribe, every nation. Okay? So if the church is to fulfill the embodiment of Acts 2, it should be everything. We should see everything in here on Sunday morning. And you know what? That should be our desire because that's how we live. We, we don't, this is not the 50s. We don't go to restaurants that are just for whites or just for blacks or just for men or just for women. We're all meshed together. When I drive through Chick-fil-A, I'm not looking around going, wow, that person doesn't look like me. That, that, person, that person's different. I can't eat at the same restaurant as that person. And yet when it comes to church, right, it's like, well, I'll be with them. So Jesus is showing us here that we need to be more open. Now, I want to say there are definitely things that we can learn from the very sincere effort of Generation X and Generation Y and the millennials because they are trying to minister to all people and they are being very intentional about trying to stoke their interest. And for a lot of us who are over 35, 40 years old, that that challenges us because it's not how we were raised. Culturally, it's not how we were raised. In the church, many times, it was not how we were raised. And that has become a barrier to the lost. That's become a barrier to people who thinks that, think that the church is racist and sexist and judgmental and, and closed to other people. And, and it's not trite to say that Jesus ministered that way. He went to those who were misunderstood and were disenfranchised and were treated as outcasts. And he showed them love and he showed them grace and he listened to them and he drew them to himself. So we are called, church, to follow that example. And we got to do, as Harbor Rock, we got to do a better job of that. However, he never condoned sin. And he never compromised the truth in order to be relevant 
and relatable. In fact, Jesus spoke truth very directly. He spoke the word of God, and it penetrated people's hearts and called them to a decision. Now, we've established the positive of the last 30 years. This is where the negative comes into play, because I believe in a very sincere attempt to reach people, there has been a careless willingness to soften and compromise and negotiate the truth. And when we soften and compromise and negotiate the truth, it nullifies its power. This is the great dichotomy of the church. And as this has gone along, we have, we have not, many churches have not held fast to literal biblical interpretation and to literal biblical conviction. And that has caused us to change what the word says to, to try to meet the subjective demands of people who don't love God. And we can't do that. So in its place... Instead of the word, we try to draw people in through methods that appeal to them and entertain them. And in doing that, we're displacing our dependence on the Holy Spirit in order to try to manipulate and maneuver so people will be interested. This is the great temptation. And this temptation is not new. Go all the way back to Genesis 3, and that's what the enemy was doing. Compromise, negotiate, change. And the scary thing is many churches and pastors and believers have happily embraced this in saying it's the only way to appeal to people, especially the younger generations. So here's the $64,000 question. How do we love and minister like Jesus? How do we do that without being judgmental, without alienating the people we are trying to reach, but also without compromising the word and the Holy Spirit by conforming to the world? How, how do we love and minister like Jesus without judgment, without alienation, but also without compromise? Well, the answer is right here in Matthew chapter 9. It is to look at the ministry of Jesus Christ. In this text, we see him exemplify two attributes that have to be present in us as believers and in us as a church, and they have to work in tandem with each other to effectively reach people for Christ. The first one's in verse 36, where he shows that we have to be sensitive to people's spiritual needs. In verse 35, he, he goes around, he's teaching and proclaiming the gospel, and he's healing people. And the motivation for that is that he sees every single person with compassion. He's looking at them not as what's their disease or what's their race or what's their sex or, or what's their experience in life. Those things are important, but that's not how Jesus looks. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on what? Tell me. The heart, right? So Jesus isn't looking at the crowds going, well, there's an Arab, and there's a Jew, and there's a Samaritan, and there's an Israelite, and there's somebody from Rome, and there's a woman, and there's a man. He's not looking at it that way. He's looking at them as sheep. And in this case, they're sheep without a shepherd. In other words, there's a spiritual lostness there. Every single problem that mankind has this morning has an underlying cause of sin. 
Every single problem in your life is rooted in some sort of sin, either by you or by somebody else. And that spiritual coldness there, when we try to minister to people, we have to understand, I'm not dealing with your problem. I'm dealing with that you may need spiritual change. This has been revelatory as I've counseled over the years because I used to try to fix the problem. And then about 15 years ago, the Lord said to me, quit trying to put a Band-Aid on the problem when there's cancer in the heart. Because the problem is not that, that I have this crisis or I have this problem. The problem is, what's the root cause of it? And if there's sin, that's causing the problem, and you need to get rid of it. So we need to see people with a different heart. We need to understand that there is, there is not a definition of what is normal or abnormal. It's sinful or not sinful. And daily, we need to ask the Lord, Lord, give me a heart for people. Give me a sensitivity for people. And if I was raised in a different climate or a different religious culture that didn't emphasize that, I've got to, Lord, Lord, Holy Spirit, you've got to give me compassion. You've got to give me a heart for people. Maybe they're different than me. And you know what? That doesn't matter because I'm different from them. What makes me think I'm better? Just give me a heart for people. I don't want to see race. I don't want to see background. I don't want to see experience. I don't want to see problems. I want to see like you see. Are they a sheep without a shepherd? Because if they are, I need to minister to them. And then look at verse 37. Jesus also lived very sacrificially in order to reach people. Now we know that. We celebrated that a couple weeks ago with the cross and the empty tomb. We know that's why Jesus came, to set aside his rights and uh, to live as one of us and to go to the cross with our sin. But, but look at verse 37. He says, now the harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. Therefore, pray for the Lord of the harvest to do what? To send out workers. This is not optional for a disciple. The last thing Jesus told us was, we studied this at the Great Commission a couple weeks ago. last thing he told us was, go out. Don't wait for them to come to you. Don't figure out a way to, for the church then to draw more people in. Because in doing that, you're probably going to compromise what you need to do. Because people are not naturally drawn to come here on a Sunday morning and raise their hands and say, holy, holy, holy. The, the average person doesn't want to do that. They don't want to come and be in a room where people are praying. They don't want to study the word for 30 or 40 minutes because they don't understand it. There, there's not a natural draw. So how are we going to reach people? How are we going to get people to come here? Well, we can't do it by compromising so that they'll be drawn to us. We're not going to be a spiritual Disney. How do we reach them? We go out. We see them with eyes of sheep without a shepherd. And then we tell them about the love of Christ. And we minister to them and we say, you know what? I got a place for you to come. It'll help you. That's how we grow. Jesus says, the harvest, look at it. It's ready, it's white, it's good to go. But we need people. And if that means sacrificing our pride and our bias and our comfort and our methods, and it does. 
then that's what it takes. Because to reach people, we have to love and minister like Jesus did. One more passage, John 8. John 8. Let's look at one more principle. The third test of our discipleship. John 8, 38. No, I'm sorry. Forgive me. John 6. Thank you. John 6, 38. Just one verse. We're going to pull that out of the context because it speaks for itself. Jesus said, I have come down from heaven. Read the next six words with me. Not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Here's the third test of discipleship. Am I really willing, am I really willing to be as selfless as Jesus? That's not an easy question. Now, look back at this verse, because theologically, it is really hard for us to understand with our limited knowledge, and I don't mean that as a slam, it's just we're limited in our knowledge. We cannot fully understand and comprehend how the Trinity works. One God, three persons. How can Jesus be the Son of God, God in flesh, here on earth, who's doing the will of the Father in heaven? Now, I'm not even going to pretend to try to be able to explain that. Because even the greatest Bible scholars can't explain it. But I want to tell you, I also can't explain nuclear fission. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Just because I can't comprehend how can one God be in three persons, how can Jesus be here and the Father be here and the Holy Spirit be over here? Anybody else struggling like me? But that doesn't mean it isn't real. It just means it's too inscrutable for my little finite mind. Jesus says, I came here fully God, but fully man, to identify with you, to take your place, to take your sin to the cross, to redeem you, and to do that, the Bible says, I have to experience every temptation that you face, including the temptation as a human to resist God's will. Now, Jesus is called the second Adam. That means he's like Adam before the fall. He's unstained by sin. So we have to understand the divine nature of God, fully God, and we have to understand the human nature of man, fully man, but the human nature is not like our human nature because it's unstained. Get it? So divine nature cannot sin, cannot be tempted. God will not ever sin. He cannot sin. He's holy. We sang it. He's completely holy. He cannot sin. But Jesus came and took on a human nature, not one corrupted by sin, because to deliver us from sin, he couldn't be stained by sin. But his human nature could be tempted. It would be a fraud if he couldn't be tempted. So he was in all points tempted like we are. And the devil knew this, which is why you see the devil come to him in the wilderness when Jesus is weak and hungry after 40 days of fasting and being alone. And the devil comes and goes after him. And what is the devil trying to do? He's trying to get Jesus to act independently of the Father. Now, I don't understand it. 
Theologically, I can't grasp it, but, but this is what happened. So Jesus makes this powerful statement in verse 38. Look at it. He says, I'm not here to do my own will. I'm not here to rebel. I'm not here to act independently and do what I want. I am here to do the will of the one who sent me. So first, Jesus was fully surrendered. Philippians 2 says he voluntarily emptied himself and took the form of a bondservant, humbling himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death. He knew the cost, and he came here anyway. He knew that by becoming one of us and selflessly loving us so much that by fulfilling that, he would save millions and billions of people. And he could have promoted himself. He could have justifiably said, this is what I'm doing. Look at me. Uh, Let me talk about the greatness of what I'm doing, which is what all the popular and successful people do. Look at me. Uh, I'm going to tweet. I'm going to take off my clothes. I'm going to go on Instagram so everybody will notice me. Jesus doesn't do this. Notice verse 38. He deflects away from himself and he exalts heaven. And it goes without saying, but we're going to say it anyway. That's our ideal. We casually kind of throw around the, the phrase, well, I need to die to self daily and take up my cross. But, but listen, that's not the exception. That's the norm. That's not, well, today, this week, all right, I'm going to try harder. I'm going to, I'm going to die to myself this week. Nope. Th- that's what you're supposed to do every single day. And if we're his disciples and we're following his example, this is going to be one of the hardest things we do and it's going to be the most important thing we do because until we are willing to fully surrender ourselves to him, Jesus says, until you do that, you are not worthy to be my disciple. Don't don't even bother to call yourself my disciple unless you are willing to fully surrender. Now let's look at the last thought. To do this... Jesus, the man, okay, you get this? God nature, divine nature, man's nature. Jesus, the man, had to be fully sanctified when he lived here. In all points tempted like we are, do you know the next words? Yet without sin. So Jesus faced every temptation you and I face, ramped up times a billion because the devil took him directly on face to face. He knows every heartache, every pain, every temptation, every trial. And in his humanity, he had to resist that temptation in order to fulfill the law. Because if he erred in one, because the law says if you sin in one, you're guilty of all. If he had sinned in one, he would not have been qualified to take our place because the final lamb had to be spotless and sinless. And Jesus gives us the perfect example of a sanctified, set-apart life. Write down 1 Thessalonians 4.3 because it says this is the will of God, our sanctification. I live in the middle of God's will, live a holy life. And look back at verse 63. Jesus says, the Spirit's the one who gives life. The flesh has no benefit, has no profit. So what's our final takeaway? To live like Jesus, there can be nothing of self. 
Boy, is that a hard sentence to say. To live like Jesus, there can be nothing of self. You want to study that further, look at Philippians 2. Spend some time in that this week. Because to live like Jesus, there can be nothing of self. So daily, hourly, we need to ask the Lord to kill that rebellious mindset. We need to ask the Lord to kill those tendencies toward our old self and to give us courage and power. Daily, we need to ask the Holy Spirit, cleanse me, fill me again. Fill me fresh, Holy Spirit. Get get rid of all the junk. Like David says, look and search and see if there's any wicked way in me and just get rid of it. Daily, we need to choose, Philippians 4, what is honorable and true and right and pure. What you see, what you participate in, what you think about, is it true and honorable and pure and right? Because that's what helps us walk in holiness. And daily, we need to ask the Lord, Lord, humble me. Humble me. Give me the heart and mind of Christ because I want to walk like my Savior. I want to walk like my Master. Because if we're going to live like Jesus, we have to look like Him in every way.